Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When your celebration of life is prepaid today, your family is protected tomorrow. Planning ahead is truly one of the best gifts you can give your family. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Daniel Klaus, who is an award-winning cartoonist, thought that after his mother died, he'd find out everything. Dan was mostly raised by his grandparents. His mom had an intense, chaotic, and mysterious life. She dated race car drivers. She fixed cars on the south side of Chicago. Dan says the two of them never really connected. The gaps in her biography stretched out for decades. The stories that she tell about her life were opaque and vague. He figured once she passed, he'd have a heart-to-heart with his brother, who knew his mom better. But it turned out the brother died a month before their mom. So Dan Klaus did his own research, scoured websites, called family members, talked with old friends. The things that he didn't know about his mom could fill a book. And ultimately, they did. The book is called Monica. It took Klaus five years to write and draw. The title character narrates most of the book. She tells us about her life, but also about that of her mom, Penny, who, like Klaus' mother, was mercurial, frustrating, and mysterious. Monica spans genres, decades, in fact. It doesn't present a grounded and reliable telling of Penny's life, but instead a collection of fantastic, beautiful, and sometimes confounding narratives. I really loved it. I can't wait to talk with Dan about it. Let's get into it. My interview with Daniel Klaus. Dan, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to see you, and I was so happy to read this book. Oh, thanks, Jesse. Glad to be here. This is a book that lives in a strange world betwixt and between. And I want to get into some of the betwixt and betweens, but first I want to ask you about a, just a simple kind of aesthetic question. Sure. A lot of the stories in this book, especially the first few draw from the kind of aesthetics and styles of genre comics. Did you read Genre comics, that is like comics that were, you know, war comics, romance comics, horror comics, those kinds of things. Yeah, I was born in 1961, you know, started reading probably two or three years old. But I had a brother who was 10 years older than me who bequeathed me his collection of old comics from his childhood, you know, 10 years earlier. So I was I was sort of 10 years behind the current timeline. You know, I was reading um, horror comics, like old sort of off-brand funny animal comics, characters like Super Duck, you know, that were like <laughs> Disney ripoffs. And, I mean, and Super Duck sounds pretty good, Dan. Super Duck was actually a masterpiece. It was a very strange, bitter guy who was smuggling a lot of weird ideas into the comics. I remember there's one where uh, 
the license plate on Superduck says 4Q2U2. You know, it's like he's, <laughs> that was his attitude toward the, the kids reading the book. But so, you know, so I, yes, I read war comics, science fiction, early superheroes, but mostly the ones that are sort of intentionally goofy, you know, where Jimmy Olsen gets like a giant cranium, something like that, you know. So, yeah, I I was immersed in that world. It was really, it was kind of the way I processed the world from a very young age. When I look at those kind of comics as an adult, I'm struck by the intense combination of really compelling aesthetics and also just like some of the most truly half aid <laughs> artistic output I've ever seen in my life. Like it is the disjuncture is so huge between like how compelling I find those frames and how much I just think of someone who had to make 50 of these in a month or whatever. Yeah, and and that's what it was. You know, it was most of the comics I read, I think, were by, you know, sort of young GIs coming back from World War II. They wanted to be artists. They would study at the Art Students League in New York or something. And, you know, every artist back then, commercial artist, wanted to work for the Slicks. You know, that was Saturday Evening Post, Collier's, you know, all the big magazines. Those paid really well. They wanted to be Norman Rockwell, you know. And instead, you know, they maybe weren't quite good enough for that. So they start working for, uh, you know, shops that would just churn out comics. You know, they, these guys would do, I don't know, five or ten pages a day. The writers would probably write, you know, an entire comic book in a day. So it's all like straight from the id. You know, there was no time to censor. There's no time to think it through and work things out. So the stories never really make sense, or if, if they do, it's a very predictable, trite kind of sense-making. But within that, there are these images that are uh, indelible and iconic, you know, things that seem straight from the id of, you know, troubled young men from, you know, who are <laughs> grappling with post-traumatic stress and things like that. So that's that's the stuff I really responded to it. It felt like, a, you know, my own dad was a World War II vet, and he never talked about anything. He was very quiet about it all. And it felt like those comics were almost expressing his inner turmoil in a way that, uh, that he didn't. Other than Super Duck's custom license plates, are there – Images or comics that you read as a kid that you remember particularly vividly? Yeah, it's, uh, a few years ago when my mom died and I was going through my stuff, I, I thought I had long ago got all the comics out of her house, but then I found boxes and boxes that I had forgotten about. And there was a box of comics from when I was a kid that were um, that were ones that were just imprinted in my brain. So... Uh, you know, mostly they were early, like, DC comics. There, there's one in particular that I've talked about that was um, sort of a science fiction. It's called Tales of the Unexpected, and it's got a uh, a family on the cover 
there's a blazing sun in the background, you know, big bright red sun, and and the family is trying to drink out of a drinking fountain, but the water's frozen, and so they can't. They're unable to drink, even though it's the hottest day on the year, uh, you know, in in the history of mankind. And and uh, I remember seeing that, and I was so frustrated by that image as a kid that I started pounding my head against the wall until my mom was like, "What are you doing?" And I was showing her that cover, you know, how can it be? This is so horrible. And so a few years ago, a friend of mine who runs an auction site saw that the original art for that cover was being sold. And so I scraped together every penny I could find. And now I actually own the artwork to that cover and it hangs sort of in front of my drawing board. And every day I look at it and I think, how can this be? How could I own something so primal and powerful that, you know, that affected me so deeply as a kid. That must have been quite the covert operation, Dan Klaus secretly <laughs> uh, bidding on the most important artwork <laughs> of his childhood. <laughs> like, you just, yeah, you can't tell no. any other comic book nerds <laughs> that that's Dan Klaus's favorite. No, I, <laughs> I uh, swore my friend to secrecy do not tell anybody about this because i imagine somebody else would buy it just so that they could you know make me trade them my most valuable piece of artwork for it so much more to get into with dan klaus author of the terrific new graphic novel monica stay with us it's bullseye from maximumfun.org and npr this message comes from apple card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Prime Video. Find your favorite shows like Reacher Season 2, Rent or buy new release movies like Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Get everything included with Prime and add on hundreds of streamers like Max for True Detective Night Country. One app, one password, Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana who wants you to know that you can shop for your next car the convenient way, 100% online with Carvana. Carvana has thousands of vehicles that'll fit all sorts of budgets. Visit Carvana.com to shop for vehicles the convenient way. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Daniel Klaus. Klaus is an award-winning writer and comics artist. He created the legendary series 8-Ball, along with Ghost World, which was turned into a movie of the same name. His latest work is Monica. It's an epic and beautiful graphic novel based in part on his own attempts to learn about the life of his late, largely absent mother. Let's get back into our conversation. Can you tell me what the circumstances of your childhood were, with the understanding (laughs) that maybe they're difficult to capture? (laughs) And that's why you wrote fiction. Yeah, yeah. Do we have three hours? I mean, it was so. So here's what I knew, sort of growing up: that my parents were divorced. My mom married a race car driver. He died in a race, 
And my mom had kind of a breakdown after that. And I went to live with my grandparents and visited my dad on the weekends. And that was, and saw my mom pretty infrequently, like once a week for dinner. And that felt normal. That was my childhood. But how old were you when you went to live with your grandparents? Uh, I was six. No, wait, it was 1966. So I was five. Um, and then after my mom died, I kind of learned, I knew that my parents were sort of involved in auto racing, kind of low level, what they call formula junior racing, or they called it back then. I don't know if it even still exists as a thing. Um, so they were involved in racing. My dad was a an engineer, had designed and built his own race car and kind of taught my mom how to work on the car. And she really took to it. And it was it was sort of their couple's hobby. And then apparently what happened was they hired a race car driver. He and my he, he was married, but he and my mom uh, had some kind of an affair. They divorced their spouses and they got married. And so that was sort of something I didn't know at all till after my mom died. And he and my mom started an auto shop on the south side of Chicago. It was like the first place in Chicago that fixed foreign cars. Um, and so my mom ran that up until, I don't know, the 90s, I think. How old were you when you found out about this stuff? Um, You know, like two years, like 60 years old. You know, and I found it out just by, by like researching online, looking at, um, you know, you, there's all kinds of racing websites where you can look up, you know, the owner of a car, the driver, all that. And I noticed like that, um, you know, the car that my dad was, was the owner of, uh, was being driven by my stepdad like two years before I was born. So it, that was something I'd know. My dad never mentioned. Uh, the driver's name ever. So, you know, and my mom, I don't think, wanted to tell me about her affair or whatever. So it was all a, all a big mystery. I'm surprised my grandma never told me, but, you know, she was old-fashioned, didn't want to embarrass my mom, I guess. Did you go looking for this information? I mean, obviously you did in the um, in the simplest sense. You found it somewhere, but was it like a big project for you? You know, it, my plan all along had always been that my mom would die and then my brother and I would finally, like, become close. We were never at all close. And I thought he knew everything. You know, he was 10 years old when I was born. So he knew the whole lore of the family and that once it was just the two of us, I would kind of get all that information from him. And then he wound up dying a month before my mom did just randomly. So um, so at that point, I realized, like, I've got to either ignore this and, you know, just put it all aside, or if I want to actually try to make sense of it, I have to kind of do some detective work. So, you know, I went through all, I found my mom's old diaries, and I found letters she had written. She had a friend that she used to write to, and she would Xerox the letters. And so there were these long letters that kind of explained what she was thinking. And she talked about like regretting, you know, not being around as as a mom, but but then always said, yeah, but I think I made the right choice. You know, she basically chose to, uh, she, after my stepfather died, she switched over to motorcycle racing. So she married a 
a motorcycle racer as her next husband. And, and she kind of, you know, went on the circuit around the country doing that. So that was, that was sort of her choice. And that's, you know, she, she didn't really regret making that choice. How did you feel when you read her describing herself not regretting making that choice? You know, it was, in a way, it was sort of a relief, you know, because I had always felt like it was me a little bit, you know, like that I was inherently off-putting in some way, you know, just, you know, it's funny to say this about a mother-son relationship, but we just never really connected. Or maybe we did when I was very little. I remember feeling very close to her when I was, you know, three or four. But at a certain point, I just, we had nothing to say to each other, no Sometimes I realize, like, I never got in an argument with my mother my whole life. I mean, imagine that, you know, how many people can say that. Like, it just never even occurred to me to argue with her because you have to have some, like, emotional connection to have an argument, I think. And I always felt like, oh, if I argue with her, she'll just shut down and maybe I'll never see her again. So it was, it was just a very uh, strained, distant relationship. It's weird to have this part of life that is both within and without your memory. Yeah. I went and cleaned out in my mom's basement a few weeks ago in San Francisco. And I was in charge of going through all the photo. My mom's alive and healthy, but going through all the photo albums and sure, had to pick some stuff out to save and put the rest in the dump. And there was these pictures of my parents when they were together. And my parents split about that when I was about four, maybe five. And it both seemed familiar <laughs> and <laughs> was something that I didn't remember at all. You sure. know what I mean? Like, And the fact that it is both of those things, I think, is what helps animate at least the search for the protagonist of your book, like this world that you can almost put your finger on, but not quite, is very different from, you know, yeah. what did grandpa do in the war? Oh, sure. I mean, I don't, I don't trust my memory at all. I feel like it's absolutely the truth. I feel like I remember things very clearly, but I know enough about memory to know that I'm probably remembering memories of memories of memories and they're always being edited. I know how I work on stories. You know, I start out with sort of a a primal image or a moment of inspiration, and then that turns into that that gets honed through repetition in my mind over and over until it feels, you know, like a gem-like uh, moment in a story, something that's indelibly itself. And I know I'm doing that with my own memories, whether I like it or not. So. I certainly wanted the memories in Monica to feel that way, to feel like there's no sort of omniscient truth to the images. In, in some comics, I've, I've played with the idea that the images are the absolute truth and the words that the characters are saying are kind of playing off of that in, in that they maybe aren't the truth and you're hearing sort of the characters' self-justifications or, or – their, their own versions of things that are then shown to be somewhat inaccurate. But in this book, I wanted the images and the words to all be in question, and you're not sure which is the truth or if any of it is the truth. 
Do you see yourself, Dan, do you see there being a truth in the narrative of Monica and her childhood and and her mother? Like, is there a story in your head that you deviated from as, you know, we see it from different perspectives and and through different layers of memory? You know, I wanted the story as I started getting deeper into it. I wanted it to feel the way I felt about my childhood and, and to try to actually remember how I felt as a child and and the the sort of mystery and chaos and 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 just sort of the fear of of everything uh being in constant flux, constantly, you know, being swept out from under my feet. I wanted to capture that emotionally. I wanted it, you know, through the eyes of of a very small child. Was that a feeling that was hard to access? Mm. Once I once I kind of put myself in the world of that character and and uh, you know started drawing people as I remembered them and drawing a version of my mom's basement apartment and um, and just you know sort of seeing the world from that low angle of a child, it all came back. It, I started remembering things I had forgotten years ago. Just you know that feeling of. Uh, when your parents take you to somebody's house because they're friends with the adults and they just happen to have kids and they throw you in a room with these other kids and it becomes like Lord of the Flies. You know, back then it really was, I remember some truly horrific kids that I that I was kind of forced to, to play with. And, you, you know, you'd leave the party just traumatized and you, downstairs your parents were just like, you know, talking about Joan Baez or something. <laughs> What did you remember that ended up depicted in the book? I tried not to do too much um, of my own stuff. I wanted it, I wanted it to feel like it was somebody else's life that was just tangential or, or almost a mirror of of my life. But everything is is vaguely similar. All the all the boyfriends that. Uh, Monica's mom goes through. They're all amalgams or versions of various men in in my mom's life, and and uh, all the you know all the posters on Monica's wall or things that you know maybe I didn't have, but my friends had. You know things that were just part of the that landscape of that era. You know I wanted to I wanted to feel like I was really back there. You know I looked at all my old photo albums and things like that and saw the kind of, um, you know, kind of the way, the way rooms looked back then, you know, people decorated in a very different way. Was your mom the kind of countercultural drifter that (laughs) Monica's mom was? No, not, not quite the same. My mom was almost, you know, in, in the, in Monica, the the mother character is um, sort of sort of aligned with a cult. We don't really know how if she's involved or what her involvement is. But my mom was almost a cult leader. You know, she had uh, as sort of you know the only woman auto mechanic on the south side of Chicago. She had a bunch of acolytes. You know, she had a lot of people who 
followed her and listened to what she said. And, and uh, like many people of her age, you know, and my age now, her opinions were sort of cemented into place at a very young age. And she never reexamined them or, or thought anything about, you know, making them more complex or anything like that. She just stuck to the things she believed when she was, you know, 35 years old. So it was, it got kind of tiresome after a while to listen to her opinions because you didn't, you didn't need to hear it. You could just uh, imagine it. You know, I, anything that happens on the news, I can just imagine her response. So it's, it would be absolutely fall in line with, with, you know, what she'd said a million other times. How did Call Center the story? Um, I mean, partly I'd always been interested in cults in to an unhealthy degree. It was just sort of a hobby. Wait, what does the unhealthy degree mean? Does that mean that you joined a few just to see how it would go? <laughs> no, it always seemed so – it seemed like the last thing I would do. I always felt like the opposite of a cult member in a way. Like I was very much in my own cult of one. And so, But as a teenager, I remember being fascinated by the SLA and the and – the Manson family and all all those groups, maybe because they, um, you know, I had a I had a very negative view of the counterculture just based on my childhood, and so it sort of uh, it clarified that I was right. You know, the SLA was representative of like my brother. You know, <laughs> like it, it was. I think it was sort of that. But um, like when I first moved to Berkeley, the first thing I did. Back in, it was 1992, I walked the two blocks from my house to the the apartment on Benvenue Avenue where Patty Hearst was kidnapped. You know, I couldn't even believe I was there. You didn't go get a nice loaf of bread? Like, that's what I would do <laughs> if I was in Berkeley right now, get myself a nice loaf. Yeah, well, could do that too. <laughs> um, but But then, I, you know, as I was working on the story, it felt more and more like like everybody all of a sudden nowadays is in a cult. I feel like maybe I'm in one. You know, it's like everybody's opinions are sort of like honed by a certain group that they're in and everything feels very uh, like we're all, you know, we all have our own doctrines and that we, if we go against those doctrines, it'll be, there'll be hell to pay within the cult. You know, it feels very much like that. So I thought it, it it had a resonance for for just how the world feels today. We'll finish up with Daniel Klaus after a quick break. When we return, he spent an extraordinary amount of time researching his family's history, turned over dozens and dozens of rocks, heard stories that he never thought were possible, learned things about his mother that, frankly, were of the sort that you can't unlearn. Is he glad that he did all that? We'll find out. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from Jackson. Seek clarity in retirement planning at Jackson.com. Jackson is short for Jackson Financial, Inc., Jackson National Life Insurance Company, Lansing, Michigan, and Jackson National Life Insurance Company of New York. Purchase New York. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. 
Have you ever wanted to know the sad lore behind Chuck E. Cheese's love of birthday parties? Or my Saturday mornings are reserved for cartoons? Or have you wanted to know how beloved virtual pet site Neopets fell into the hands of Scientologists? Or how our former Mattel employee managed to grow Sega into a video game powerhouse? Join us, hosts Austin and Brenda, and learn all of these things and more at Secret Histories of Nerd Mysteries, now on Maximum Fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Daniel Klaus. He's the author of Eight Ball, Ghost World, and the brand new graphic novel, Monica. There's like a horror and sci-fi comic trope and other form trope, which is like, I'm back in the old hometown and it's how I remember it, but it's not how I remember it. And that shows up in Monica. There are a lot of kind of revisitings where something seems slightly off. And it occurs to me that the feeling of having perfected a picture, that that picture has its kind of like still perfection, is not that different from that feeling of like, I've been in this diner a thousand times, but something's a little bit wrong. Yeah, I mean... that. That's certainly how I experience all the art that I've loved my entire life. You know, there's certain things that I loved the first time I saw them when I was six or seven years old and have gone back to, and I and I go back to them in cycles. Like the artist Basil Wolverton, who drew these very grotesque figures, they're very appealing uh, to like any six or seven-year-old boy. They're very grotesque. And... Uh, and so my, all my friends, we loved them. And then, you know, and then you, then they seem like, okay, I get it. You know, I, I'm moving on to something else. Then 15 years later, you look at them again, and all of a sudden you see them in a whole new light. You see a whole new level of, uh, of what's going on, and you, and you appreciate them on a different plane. And then another 15 years passes, and you go back. And I find I've done this cycle with all my favorite artists over and over and they all all the good ones keep coming back in ways that are exciting and interesting and and new you know they become new again and that is very much like revisiting that you know that old town that you remember from childhood and everything's a little different but it's all still the same too somehow there's also though that kind of distressing quality of stillness that is often in those stories and is in the versions of those stories in Monica, like the streets are all empty or I don't see someone that I recognize or I kind of see someone I recognize, but they look slightly wrong. And I think like if if your comics had more kapow action panels, maybe we wouldn't feel that disquieting stillness, but that aesthetic of having perfected the picture and that kind of stillness dovetail really effectively. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, certainly I love those kinds of stories. I love the uh, Lovecraft trope, you know, where he goes down the windy road and finds this town that he'd never heard of in somewhere in new England. And, and uh, you know, it's, you know, run by, alien creatures or what you know i just i love that 
that, well, I love the idea that you could get lost anywhere in America and find some little town that nobody knows about. You know, that's such a, that's such a dreamy idea. I, I think as a kid, I felt like that. I felt like we'd go on these cross-country trips and all of a sudden you'd get on a dirt road somewhere in Michigan and you'd find yourself in some tiny little whistle-stop farm town where there'd be a, you know, a drugstore that all of a sudden sold weird comics and magazines that you'd never seen before. You know, that that kind of feeling was so exciting. It felt like the world was filled with stuff like that. And and now that's, it, it feels impossible. It feels like you'd have to go to like rural Slovenia or something to find something that not everybody knew about. You know, it's, it's not going to happen uh, in, you know, New Hampshire or whatever like it used to. Monica, the protagonist of this book, the woman who's looking for her roots, becomes a success in business. That's sort of like an essential piece of the middle of her story. The thing that drives her towards her search is that having ended. And the way that you depicted success was so vivid to me. And it's kind of like medium success. It's not like, you know, I get to play a Stradivarius in the Berlin Philharmonic type success. Right. But I wondered, is Dan writing here about his own uncomfortable slash comfortable feelings about his own success? I certainly felt like, you know, I had things to say about how that feels that that felt like they should or could be shared. And I also, you know, in dealing with, you know, being involved in Hollywood, being involved in museum shows and things, I realized I'd found myself somewhat adjacent to very rich people occasionally. And that feeling was so unlike any depiction of of how it feels to be rich that I I felt like I I had sort of a window onto that that was something I wanted to explore. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's something not people are very uncomfortable writing about. So I wanted to kind of push into something that was, um, you know, that would have been easy to avoid. But I thought it was an interesting area to explore. I didn't, I didn't want to show her at her most successful because I kind of I felt in my own experience that's the kind of thing I just tend to forget that's a that's the stuff that does not stick in my memory or are those like good moments where you know all of a sudden uh, you know a book's doing really well or something like that it's it's much more the uh, sort of the painful elements that surround it that stick in my memory do you feel proud of your successes um it depends on my frame of mind. I mean, I, I try to because I. It's always my inclination to kind of beat up on myself and to think of, uh, look at only the the flaws and the failings. And so I'm, I try very hard to to like appreciate it. I don't know, proud of it, but to appreciate, especially the fact that, you know, I've supported myself as an artist for a long career. That's that's a miracle. That's something I would have never in a million years dreamed I could do. And if nothing else, that's, uh, you know, just just an incredible thing for me to imagine telling 
the 22-year-old version of myself who would have, you know, sold his soul for that. I feel like when I was making $18,000 a year, I was like ready to ride that out. I was like, it's fine. We'll figure it out. $18,000 a year forever. <laughs> All that right. seemed like an incredible amount of money. <laughs> I was like, I got that catastrophic health insurance. I'm made in the shade. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Come get me, catastrophe. <laughs> right. Bring it on. I'm here to withstand. But there's something odd about the kind of success that, you know, there's like the classic story. I I always was driving for this success, and, and when I got it, it tasted bitter. But there's this other kind of success that is like not what you expected or imagined or were thinking of. Not that you were against it. <laughs> sure. But it's an odd sideways kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, and and really the as things have gone on, the the only thing that I'm really happy about is, is that I can still draw the comics. You know, that's that's the great joy in doing all this is to be able to have that time where I'm completely alone figuring these things out and getting into the studio every day and just drawing and writing and creating these comics. That's, you know, the the fact that I'm allowed to do that is the true success. You know, it's once things come out and people like them or don't like them or buy them or don't buy them, that's um, that feels like commerce. That's sort of somebody else's thing that I'm kind of party to or or you know participate in. But it's the the actual drawing of the comics is the is the thing I I'm really living for and and just trying to constantly support. Are you? Glad that you went poking around in the half-remembered and unknown parts of your family and past? I think so. I think um, it keeps me from, from you know, sort of picking at the scab, trying to figure everything out, trying to, you know, it, it keeps my imagination from wasting its time trying to figure out scenarios. You know, I don't spend much time trying to understand just the logistics of what was going on. You know, it's almost like devising a plot for a story. That takes up a lot of mental energy. And so now I use my mental energy for other things. So I am glad I I got at least the basics down. Of course, I'll never understand the character motivations of, of anybody in my family. You know, it was all, that's all very mysterious. I'm not sure I can ever quite figure that out. Well, Dan... I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to get to talk to you again. And I'm glad for this book, which I honestly think might be the best thing of yours that I've ever read. I just loved it. So thank you very much. Oh, man. Thank you, Jesse. You're really the best. That was great. Daniel Klaus. His new book is called Monica, one of my favorite works from Klaus, as you probably heard me say. And he is a legend in the genre. You can get it at your local book or comic store or bookshop.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I just got home from touring with my friend John Hodgman and our show Judge John Hodgman. Uh, I had such a great time. Thank you to everybody who came out to those shows. We have a streaming version 
Uh, you can find all the information about that, which is uh, going to premiere soon, at our events page, MaximumFun.org slash events. It's a good time. You can hear me sing. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Special thanks this week to Katie Jensen of Vocal Fry Studios in Toronto for recording Jillian Tamaki at her studio. And to Brian Matheson at Skyline in Oakland for recording Daniel Klaus. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on Instagram. There we share interview highlights, behind-the-scenes looks, and more. We're at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor State Farm. If you're a small business owner, it's your life. State Farm agents are small business owners, too, so they can help you choose personalized policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Do you want in on a secret? Like why your favorite pop star is so popular? Or why a makeup fad is suddenly sweeping your feed? It's that none of these things happen by accident. On the It's Been a Minute podcast, I don't just tell you what's trending. I dig deeper to find out why. Join me, Brittany Luce, on It's Been a Minute from NPR.